Joining me on the podcast today is a man who has literally dedicated his life to the game of rugby. Uh, a proud Lancastrian, not words that come out of the mouth of a Yorkshireman that easily. His playing days began at Fylde, which laid the foundations for an impressive international career. He went on to captain England 21 times, leading his side to a famous Grand Slam in 1980. That same year, he also led the British and Irish Lions to South Africa. And whilst his playing career may have been cut short in 1982, his dedication and commitment to the game he loved was really only just beginning. In the years since, he's played an instrumental role in the game's governance and growth, with administrative roles at the RFU, the Lions, and since 2016, as the current president of World Rugby. Not to mention my captain on Question of Sport. His service to rugby was recognised in a New Year's Honours list, where he was awarded a GBE, one of the nation's highest honours. So it gives me immense pleasure to welcome my good friend, Sir Bill Beaumont, to today's podcast. Bill, welcome. Thank you very much, Ted, for that uh, that welcome. I feel uh, very humble, especially coming uh, from somebody like you. So really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Billy, uh, I think it was one of my old lecturers. You might have even known them at Loughborough. It was Jim Greenwood, actually, many yeah, years uh, ago. Yeah. A great coach, Jim, great, Jim great Hall. Scottish coach. Oh, fantastic guy! And it was all—it was Jim that always, um, always made the observation to young students that you only ever reach perfection on your CV. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Most people have found out with me. <laughs> Right, let, let, let's get into this. And, and it, it is inevitable. I'm, I'm going to start from the beginning a bit. But what I'm always fascinated, Bill, with is, is, much, is, is as much about the influences on the people that agree to come into the hot seat on my podcast as I am actually subsequently about what they went on to do, because I think the two are inextricably linked. And I'm, I'm a great believer that we're all shaped by some pretty indelible factors. There's geography, there's landscape, there's family, there's friends, there's education. Um, and with you, when I look at all those ingredients, there does seem to be uh, a sort of suffusion of all of those things that has sort of created what you are and what you became through rugby and, and obviously beyond that. So Tell me a little bit about your background, because obviously the North is is an important element in your life, the geography, clearly, and a very, very close family and a family business as well. Yeah, well, actually, my love of sport came from both my mother's side and father's side. Mother's side were largely cricket. My uh, my uncle played county cricket. He was the last amateur captain for, for Lancashire way back in the, in the early 60s, and my that side of the family was all cricket. Uh, but my father's side was, was the rugby. Now, my father was educated in Blackpool at Blackpool Grammar School. His, his father, my grandfather, taught there, and he was the rugby coach for the uh, the, the the first year's uh, schoolboys when they came to school. He was their first rugby coach. So that's my love of rugby really came from, from the father's side and then played at school. And then when I was 18, 17, 18, I joined the local rugby club, Fylde Rugby Club, which my father had played for, and that subsequently my sons had played for and grandchildren played for. So that was really, that's my home of rugby. It's a local rugby club. 
that now when when I played, we were a pretty decent team. We wouldn't have been over the lesson of this world, but we we, we were we were up there. We we were pretty good. Um, I think the one thing that really attracted me to the game was the people involved in it. I just felt really, really comfortable in that rugby environment. And I think what was a great thing, and it, it probably still happens in over 95% of all rugby clubs, or all, all, all clubs of also, whether it's a local football team or what have you, that that dressing room is a unique place because as an amateur sport, and you would have seen this all your career, you had people from different walks of life. You would have a doctor, you'd have a policeman, you'd have a lawyer, you'd have a, you name it. Every part of society represented in Betty Room. And it didn't make any difference whatsoever, your background. You were actually judged on, A, how you performed on the on the field, how you reacted with your teammates, and actually, were you a decent guy? And to me, I loved that dressing room that camaraderie, that that sort of Mickey take humour that you have in a dressing room. And I think that was the thing that really attracted me, that I was brought up sort of with quite a, a strong mother. I think my mother used to say she was a strong person. In a way, this was a rugby. I could escape. I could escape from the family because I, I worked in a family business and it's the one place where I could really escape on my own. Uh, and that was sort of rugby club. Once you started playing the first team and you started playing against international, it's only then that you realise that actually, you know, you're not brilliant at it, but you're actually not a bad player. You could actually... And then I was lucky enough to play with some really good players, really good players. And I don't know what it's like in athletics, but I learned more from playing with good players, training with good players, looking how they prepared themselves for, for a match. And I was able to just pick up on their on their habits. Well, yeah, I, I was just smiling at one of your, your observations about the dressing room and, you know, the bricklayers and the policemen and the lawyers. I always remember, as an improbably young age, I managed to win a Yorkshire Sea track title. Yeah. And it wasn't the most popular win of the day because... There was a very popular Yorkshire uh, athlete, Walter Wilkinson. He actually held the British mile record for a time. Yes. And, you know, I sneaked up on, my, on the line. And we went a few weeks later, we ran in what was the old inter-counties at Crystal Palace. And uh, he was a, he, he worked for, on the railways. Yeah. And I got off the train at, uh, I can't remember, it must have been St Pancras. Yeah. And I saw him on the platform and I thought, well, you know, I walked over to him and I said, well, you know, Oh, Walter, if I'd known you were on the train, I would have sat with you. And he said, on the train, you dozy bastard, I drove you down. <laughs> and he was off to, you know, we were. he was competing that 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 evening. We were both competing for Yorkshire yeah. that evening. And that, that, was, that was the background. But look, I'm interested in one element here because amongst those balances, and look, I absolutely recognise the continuum through so many careers is the is the support and love of families and often the, the love of the sport is engendered through a family. But you, of course, were balancing in in your early days as a rugby player, you're also balancing a full-time job in the family business. That can't have been easy. No, it wasn't. I, I was helped in a way that 
we're a sporting family and that, you know, they, they wanted a pound of flesh out of me, certainly. And so uh, you might have been playing in front of uh, 75,000 Twickenham on a, on a Saturday, travel and uh, travel home on a Sunday. Monday, you're in, you're in, the, you're in the business, first thing Monday morning. And every, every player was the same. Everybody had a day job and you'd all go to work on, on a Monday. And I think the one, one person who, who I really respected and loved was my father. And my father would take me to games, as dads do. And he'd watch the game and he'd stand around in the corner of the clubhouse and probably have a couple of pints. And then I'd drive him home. Then we'd drive home. He was always supportive. Mm. It doesn't matter if it been a good, bad or indifferent game. He was always supportive. And he was never a father that always wanted to be in the forefront to say, oh, my son's doing it, my son's doing that. He was always quite happy in the background. I've always respected my father for that. That sort of, uh, and I know he, he obviously got great enjoyment and satisfaction out of, uh, out of watching me play. What point did you think, right, I'm going to give this a serious, uh, a serious go? You know, I mean, you know, was there a particular match? Was there a particular moment? Was it just, it, or was it, as you're probably going to tell me, it's just incremental. You sort of just go through the grades, you do it at school, you join the club, and you you sort of almost find yourself there. I think I joined it. I remember joining the club. I got in the first team. We were playing team up mostly down at the Reading. Yeah. Good side. And they, and they, very good club. And they had a second row of Nigel Horton who played for England. And somebody said to him, uh, said to me, you played against Nigel Horton today. So I was 20, I think, at the time. So, you know, so what, what, what's great about that? You know, I suddenly found out what was great about it 80 minutes later. But uh, playing against somebody like that. But I was lucky that sort of I was a generation of really good players in the north of England. In the north, Lancashire, for instance, had a very good team. Uh, with the likes of Frank Cotton, who was the British Lion. We also had another Loughborough man, Steve Smith, who uh, also captain Loughborough University. Joined us later, yes. Yeah, so there's a few a few from Loughborough. He had a um, didn't he have a couple of England captains? He had a short stint as an England captain, didn't he? He was indeed. Yeah, both Fran and, and Smithy. I see them around the place. Still see them. Still going strong. They go to the uh, part of the Lupra alumni, and I think they go to their reunions every now and then. They, they do indeed. Uh, yeah, and the guy, great, really good uh, pal of mine who unfortunately passed away, he was a big Lupra man, a guy called John Crowsdale, who... Uh, yes. Who, uh, Crusher, he was... Uh, he taught at local school, play for file, play, play for life. So I was lucky that I got into a county team uh, that was successful and selected look at... They picked players from successful teams. And in a way, you might made have made some really good players who didn't play for successful teams. They never really got the chance. And I think that's the thing about selection is actually being able to uh, see a player playing in a bad team and know this guy can play. But I, w- I was lucky enough, so I then played for regional rugby and you play against the touring teams. And eventually, at the age of 22, if England had... Uh, appointed a new coach, a guy called John Burgess, who was the okay. former Lancashire coach. There mm-hmm. were an injury on a Friday morning. 
uh, before England played Dublin and he called me in at the last minute and that's where I made my debut. Never been to Ireland in my life, never been to uh, never been to Lansdowne Road, obviously. You know, all of a sudden you're running out at Lansdowne Road facing Willie John McBride, who'd just come back on the most sex having skipped the most successful Lions tour of all time uh, in 1974. And there he was, you know, uh, facing me. Or there I was facing him. You almost come to the game now with a unique perspective because you played in the amateur era. You sort of, with, with great evocation, you've sort of articulated that. But you've also governed the game in yeah. the professional era. I can't imagine that there are too many people that have seen such a juxtaposition over their uh, over their whole careers. And I'm guessing your ability to do what you're doing now is in large part seen through the eyes of a player. And actually, I was banned from the game for five years for uh, writing an autobiography. So the, the rules are so strict about amateurism that if you wrote an autobiography, even though you'd retired from playing and kept the proceeds, you were then banned. So I was banned for five years till they changed the rules and said that you know players who wrote books, and there's lots of players who wrote books at the end of their career, never ever played professionally, but then were professionalised. But it's all changed now. People tend to forget that happened. So I was then able to do my question of sport things and things like that. And I wasn't really involved in rugby at all for five, six years. And that's why people say to me, did you ever want to be a coach? And the answer was, I was unable to be a coach because I was banned. So I then drifted, then sort of obviously did my BBC stuff, uh, did some pieces. And But then I was invited back as a ex-player onto the Rugby Football Union RFU committee. That's when my administrative career started. And uh, I'd always been involved in the club, helped the club out, fundraising, things like that. I must have uh, auctioned so many of my old jerseys off, helping them to... <laughs> so the club, the, the local club, would be really important. But you're quite right. I go to every meeting thinking I'm still a player. But when I look at the size of the players and the speed of the players, I'm delighted I'm not. <laughs> Well, well, I'm I'm going to come on to that in a few moments, but it it always makes me smile because it was the same in athletics. The people that were the most vociferous adherents of uh, the amateur rules were normally those people who never had to worry about where the next meal was coming yeah. from. They were always yeah. sort of sitting there, relatively comfortable, and could afford those those sorts of principles, but they could never see it from the, the point of view of a working-class kid that was just trying um, to make, not make particularly huge sums of money, but just trying to survive well, you know, well, right, and, yeah, and we, trade at the same time. Yeah, we, we didn't sort of live a, Henry and I, when we got married, a lavish lifestyle, we went on camping holidays and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. You know, well, you know, we wasn't going, food, to Dubai, wasn't going to Dubai <laughs> for a weekend, and that's, <laughs> I can assure you of that. Uh, look, you, you actually led me nicely into the uh, one element you just talked about a few moments ago because you talked about looking, looking at the size of the players now uh, compared to, to your era. And <clears throat> I was watching some, you know, we probably all saw the lovely footage of Barry John the other day. Yeah, the yeah. Black and white stuff. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
he was a skinny kid. He could have. He looked a bit like when he was off running. He looked a bit like a four hundred meter runner. I mean, he really. Yeah. Yeah. But <clears throat> I'm guessing that the game has now become physically a whole heap more demanding. Are there elements of that? I mean, it's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because you know, I, there's no doubt in my mind that 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 sort of New Zealand team from the late seventies, they suddenly appeared on the pit on the on the pitch looking like decathlon. And the world started to change then. But uh, th th there is an element in the game that still rather rues the day where, you know, there, there was just yes. outrageous physical talent that wasn't necessarily honed in the gym. I think it is a challenge for the sport that unless you are big, you are not going to be successful. And we've always, we've always had this that the game is for all shapes and sizes. Now, at the community level, it is. And let's remember that 98% of all rugby played at the community level. Uh, the elite level, I think players are actually getting slightly smaller now in certain teams. And I think one of the issues is that we've got to bring more athletes. Players are going to be more athletic i.e. from a running point of view, because I think otherwise it, it would just become another form of American football in a way. And I think that is a challenge that the sport has, is that to, A, ensure, number one, that the game is as safe as possible, B, that it is accessible and people can enjoy it. But at the top level, it is very much a, it is a physical game. And we, would there be a place for Barry John? There'd be a place for Barry John in any team. There would there be a place for Phil Bennett? Absolutely. You know, because they would be good enough. You know, it's a bit like comparisons, sort of, would they be good enough to play in the modern era? They would adapt. They would adapt. And you see Barry John, sort of, the way how he used to just go through a defence, Phil Bennett was the other one. Phil Bennett was a sidestepper. But it, it, it's interesting, though, because in my modest researches before undertaking this, this podcast, um, England played 50 test matches in the 1970s. Uh, and your career, you won 34 caps for the national team. In the 2010s, by contrast, England played 100 test matches and there are several several players um, these days breaking the 100 cap oh, yeah, barrier. That's, yeah. that's, not, that's not unusual. So is there too, is there too much rugby now? Um, I would say there's too much rugby. I think you have to... Are there too many games that players play? I think that is really well... Monitored now. Well, okay. That, let, that, let me that, hold that, to that, that side. Is there too much pressure? Look, there's pressure. Whatever you do, as an amateur yeah. player, the pressure. The pressure. If you are working on a production line and you don't meet your targets, there's pressure there. Whatever you do, there is pressure. The pressure if you can't pay the mortgage next week. You know that that is a pressure. I think the the pressure comes on uh, individuals if you're not performing well. You know, for start, you know, the team not performing well, the sort of uh, pressure of playing in front of us, like on England, the pressure to 
having lost against Fiji in a warm-up game in August, do pretty well in the World Cup. But then your next home game, you're actually reminded that the last game that you played at Twickenham, you lost for the first time ever against Fiji. So that's in the back of your mind when 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 uh, when the guys are playing. But I just think that players probably play less than they did. Um, I think finances now of the game drive how many internationals have played. Because, well, I played. If you played twenty times for England, that probably meant when I played that you probably played five seasons, but you only played four games normally. Yeah. About every four, fourth year, you might have played a visiting touring team. But on the whole, you only played four international matches a season. So if you had 20 caps, you were way up there as somebody who had five seasons playing international rugby. And the way that the select worked, that was a miracle. <laughs> <laughs> but this is interesting because, of course, Longevity of career now is also in large part better training regimes, better nutrition, and I'm guessing yeah. just yeah. The, the 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 burgeoning technology around medical rehab and diagnostics. I mean, you know, I remember from my old days. You know, there were injuries that would keep you out for a season that have now, you know, are being diagnosed now in sort of thirty seconds, and you're back. You know, you're probably back training in a week's time. It's yeah, just a very yeah. different era. Absolutely. And I think it's, it's paramount that we're always at the cutting edge and leading edge of, uh, of medical science to help our, help our athletes. And I think that, that the players are well looked after. They are, they, they are the assets. Yes. And, and you want to make certain that you look after your assets. I'm guessing the other area that um, we're all you know, now dealing with in a, in a much more profound way. And I think probably you and I would accept that actually it's, it's a good thing. And that's the mental health element. You know, you've, you've had the way, you know, the Wayne Barnes, Owen Farrell, uh, but you've got two challenges here that I, I noticed have seemed to have come together at the same time because you've got the mental health issues, you know, stepping away from the game for a little bit, but yeah. then you've got that pernicious, horrible stuff that appeared online attacking them so you know again it's an it's an it's an element that we've had to deal with at world athletics because a lot of our competitors end up at the wrong end of that stuff particularly the women in the sport and i know this is something that that uh, you particularly you particularly honed in on at world rugby well without doubt and i think it's easy for people now to have access to social media where all you have to do with a flick of a phone you know is send out some comment and you might have hundreds of thousands of followers and that goes viral. It's quite an easy thing to do, isn't it? I just think, for instance, we cannot have and tolerate any abuse towards, let's say, Wayne Barnes and a match official who, you know, uh, it's yeah. absolutely appalling that. And we will support our match officials to the end because if we don't have any match officials... We don't have a game. It's as simple as that. And the standards that we have to set starts with my grandchildren playing mini rugby and on the touchline, behaviour on the touchline is equally as important with parents uh, that they have to respect that whoever's got the whistle, then they're doing a 
you know, a mini rugby or up to one play soccer as well. And then to me, totally abhorrent that a man like Owen Farrell, who has played over 100 times for England, is the England skip, skipper, should have to put up with a torrent of abuse from people who probably don't really understand him or understand the game. And not acceptable, it's not the standards that we have in sport. I'm not in sport for that. I'm in sport to encourage more people to enjoy our sport, to get the benefits out of our sport, and not to spend half the time having to sort of uh, defend, you know, well, I don't don't defend, don't defend people, you know, just sort of uh, encourage people not to come out with uh, ridiculous things about match officials and players. I, I'm going to jump back a bit now because I don't want to, you know, we, we, we've inevitably, and, and I want to go further into that area, we've inevitably gone into to some of your governance roles, you know, the RFU, the, the Lions, the uh, and obviously World Rugby. But I, d- I don't want to le- leave your playing career too far behind because... It's a you... long time ago. It's a long time ago, that, mate. Well, don't yeah. worry, Bill. It's it, We're sort of the same vintage. Uh, I don't want to carbon date either of us, but uh, 1980 was a, was a big year for me, but it was probably an even bigger year for you, given that you managed to break the stranglehold the stranglehold of Welsh rugby. Yours yours a bit bigger, I think. <laughs> Tell me about nineteen eighty. That was a big year. Seventy nine eighty that we yeah. played in a played a North of England team that uh, played the All Blacks touring Kiwis at Otley. And I looked around not often that you you read with a really but good bunch of mates that you trust implicitly uh on the field. And I looked around that dressing room that day and there were four, five England captains, four myself and four former England captains in that team, future England captain in that team. And you just look around the dressing room. They're all mates that you played with for a long, long time and thought, we're going to win this match. Not often you do that against New Zealand. You think, actually, we're going to win this game. And we ended up winning it. I've never been ever... Is so confident, not not cocky, but I'm just confident we were a better team on the day, and that you don't doesn't happen against New Zealand too often. Then we played them the week after with England, and the selectors picked a totally different team. We got beaten by a point, <laughs> but then 1980, the Grand Slam season, culminating uh, uh, beating uh, Scotland at Murrayfield, and then going on to uh, capture the Lions in South Africa. Do you think the Do you think the Lions tour now means as much as it did to you in nineteen eighty? I think for a player, yes. I think for countries, probably not, because there were no World Cups then. Yeah, and now I think all teams gear up in a four year cycle towards the World Cup. I think from a player's point of view, and also a rugby supported point of view, then the Lions is so, so important. And it's something that's been going since the 1880s. And it'd be far, it'd be easy to say, oh, let's do away with it. But it is a tradition. And as a player, you want to play international rugby. Then you want to be picked for the Lions. And then when you're on the Lions tour, you then want to be selected for the testing. And... To me, it was 
Nothing will beat playing for England. Running out of Twickenham, captured in England, to me, is the highest accolade that you can get. But then to captain the Lions for the best of the four countries uh, and try and you know, get a group of players together to win a series is very difficult for the Lions, not easy. I, I know that they're already sold out the next year on the tour to Australia. Three test matches, Brisbane, yeah. Melbourne, Sydney. I think they're sold out already. Will you be going? I'll be going, yeah. Yeah. If there's a uniqueness, uh, uniqueness about the Lions. And, of course, you've, we've got the Women's Lions Tour in 2027. That must yeah. be also helping grow the game. Well, that's the, inaug so the inaugural Lions Tour, the first first time that they've yeah. uh, they've had it. And that's quite right. And I think talking of, of women's rugby, women's rugby is the fastest-growing form of our sport. Now, I was lucky enough to be in New Zealand uh, last year for the uh, the final of the uh, the World Cup down there. We've got the World Cup uh, in England in 25. Opening game, by and, and that's And that's an expanded tournament, isn't it? Expanded, yeah. Yeah, there's uh, 16 teams in it now. They will... Opening game is Bank Holiday Monday, the Stadium of Light. I'm hoping to get... Uh, over 45,000 as a sellout there for the opening game in, in Sunderland. Re removing your global hat for a moment and, and very, very firmly taking a view through your own home nation, do you think that England is readying itself for its, for its Lionesses moment here in rugby? Oh, without a doubt. They, I went to the Six Nations game last year in April, Twickenham. Uh, I think 52,000 people went to watch the game England-France. It was a great game of rugby. England were leading about 30 points at half-time. Got into the final play of the game. France could have won it. It was an unbelievable game of rugby. The uh, the cup final, the uh, World Cup final against New Zealand went down to the last play of the game. So certainly, they England will be favourites for for the tournament, playing at playing at home. And the the expansion and interest now in the uh, in women's rugby is absolutely phenomenal. It's interesting that actually the, the discussion we've started on the World Cup is actually about the way it's. I, I guess it's instructive that it's about the women's game uh, and not necessarily just starting where I thought we were going to start, which was of course the recent Rugby World Cup in France. Give me your reflections on that because. From an outsider's point of view, that looked, from beginning to end, that looked like a triumph for a tournament. It was. Well, as you know, the French are great. Oh, it's a great rugby nation. Yeah. I believe a rugby nation. I think the only disappointing aspect about it, we 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 couldn't really do anything as an organising body, was that we had to make the draw. Yeah. For the pool draw uh, two years in advance because the French uh, authority... To be fair, they need to know what teams, whether are England going to Marseille or sort of yeah, Ireland going to Yeah, the security implications are profound. It, it, it's South Africa obviously won it. Anyway, they were seeded one. England was seeded two for the World Cup. But their seeding, probably their ranking, would have been probably seven or eight or something like that, you know, at, for the actual ranking at uh, the commencement of the tournament. And so it ended up that it was 
slightly unbalanced in a way where you had uh, uh, New Zealand, you had France, you, you had Ireland, you had South Africa, uh, Scotland, all, all in, in, the, uh, in those pools. But having said that, you know, uh, uh, you've still got to beat everybody to get to the final. And think of South Africa, but it two games or three games by a single point. Yeah. Unbelievable. Unbelievable that sort of uh, the semi-final, nobody would have given England a prayer of getting close to South Africa and yeah. then become within a whisker of winning it. France going out by a single point. And I think that was a disappointment in a way. Well, Hugo Monia, he said, the French then switched on the rain. He said there'd been no rain at all till, uh, <laughs> <laughs> till the French went down. And, uh, but it was, you know, coming back to it, it's an unbelievable game to rugby. The final was an uh, incredible game. Semi-finals, quarter-finals, all great games in rugby. A huge advert for the game. And I think it took, it takes the game on. Now we're going to Australia um, in 27. And look, rugby in Australia uh, needs something like a World Cup. It needs a Lions store to really help them to reinvigorate the game uh, down there because they've been on the rough end of the uh, couple of years, uh, both play-wise and commercially. So this should really give them a kickstart. Because it's interesting, you look at the sport, think, well, we have established countries and we, we want to grow the game globally. Of course we do. And I, I look at huge areas where there are uh, potential and we would be investing in the USA. You know, huge, huge sort of market. Yeah, you know, Africa, for instance, what a, a huge amount of talent that there is in Africa that is currently untapped. You know, different forms of the game maybe for, for, for Asia. And yet we can't afford established nations who've been successful to drop off the perch either. <laughs> we can't. We no, no, it, it, no it, look, you know, you, you, you're talking to somebody who's, you know, the powerhouse now of our sport is Africa. You know, 35, 40 years ago, you've had individual excellence yeah. But you've now got nations that are like Kenya, Uganda, Botswana. They're you know yeah. they're they're the powerhouses of our sport, and and that's yeah. the way it's developed. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you back to the Rugby World Cup in France last year because actually <laughs> I my favourite. I know I know where you're going. My favourite <laughs> moment. Although I'm going to choose my words carefully. I don't want to. I don't want to sort of stir up a diplomatic moment, but. My favourite moment was your Usain Bolt sprint from the tunnel to the podium uh, to hand out the medals, getting there way in advance of the French president. That that will always... I, I never saw you, Bill, as a sprinter, but hey, no. uh, times change. But give me your favourite moments of the tournament. Well... My most nervous moment was the opening ceremony when I walked out onto the uh, with the uh, the French president Macron, and there were probably seventy thousand people singing the Marseillaise and booing. And I thought, <laughs> so I went I went to this, the, the podium and I thought, not the opening paragraph of an obviously happy ending. Is it? I thought, what do I do here? So I thought, just wait, wait, wait before I let down. So that that was obviously a highlight, a nervous sort of highlight. I think, obviously, uh, as an Englishman, watching England play against Argentina, who I thought England managed the game brilliantly with, with four yeah. teams. Uh, which, uh, and I think the semi-final, the quarter-finals, where you had 
you know, uh, four great teams playing sort of France, Ireland, South Africa, and New Zealand. You know, those quarterfinals in Paris were probably the two best games of rugby yeah. the whole tournament. And then just the efficiency of of South Africa, how they how they go about playing the game of rugby, you have to admire, you know, how their stoicism and their their sort of they must have a really strong mental attitude, how they play their game. Nothing sort of fades with them. And in the end of the day they if you win those games, then then you pick up the trophy. Uh, no, I, look, you know, I, I was the recipient of some of your hospitality, Bill. I will declare yeah. that straight away. And um, but no, it was, we, uh, enjoy, we enjoyed you being there as well. It was a it yes. was a it was a fabulous tournament, and I didn't actually have that far to come because our World Athletics headquarters are in the south of France anyway. So it was it was actually nice to be able to go to rugby on the train for a change. Um, you, you talked about the globalizing the game uh, and and you know wanting to develop you know continents that may not be that familiar with the game and and I'm guessing the shake up of the global calendar, the two tier approach, you know, and and we witnessed in uh, we did witness actually in uh, in France the you know the emergence of the Portugals and the Chiles. I mean this is yeah. this is moving in the right direction, but I'm guessing the the a reconfiguration of the global calendars, a large part of that. Yeah, look, we, we're now going to have this Nations Cup, whether it's going to be all your all your fixtures, whether it's in the Six Nations or the Rugby Championship, they all count. And what it will do, it will give the, the chance of the likes of Chile, Portugal, Tonga, Samoa, uh, to play at a higher level. And I think it's important that as a world body, is that the game will only grow if you invest in facilities, if you invest in coaching. Because if you don't have those, then then you're just going to stagnate, and it'd be the same old, same old. So to watch, you know, unbelievably, sort of the way how how Fiji play, for instance, you know, to go and watch uh, Portugal run, sort of uh, how they play. Is great for the game, and there's different ways that we can grow the game. That we could have uh, in some areas via sevens. I think sevens is a great vehicle. Get people starting to play the game to understand the game. Uh, so I think the, we've got a new seven series now there that um, that is proved to be really successful for for men and women. We've got a women's World Cup, so you've got extra uh, extra countries coming to that, and we're going to expand the World Cup the more country, 24 teams going into Australia. So there's four more teams going to, uh, into, into a World Cup. So I think we are doing our level best. Uh, we, it's never good enough. It's never quick enough, never fast enough. We don't have enough money to do it. But so I think USA, South America, for instance, if you look now where Uruguay have established themselves as a major playing country, You've got obviously Chile that were really successful in the World Cup, and then really sort of try and develop Brazil, which is a huge sort of sporting uh, nation. 
No, to, 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 to I, I, I know it's not specifically your challenge, but I'm interested in your thoughts about this because you, you talked lovingly, if I may say so, about the importance of grassroots, the impact that it's had on, on, on your career and everything that you, you've gone on to do. Um, what, does, what does the game need to do, though? to maintain its financial stability because you you know you've you've only got to open you know a newspaper or um, any platform of late you've got several premiership rugby clubs wasps worcester london irish um really struggled financially and i guess uh, you know it's the, the this is slightly at variance with the way the game is growing and, and just the conversation we've just had about trying to take it into emerging nations. But, you know, even in even in our own, what would normally be viewed as a well-heeled backyard, there are challenges. Yeah, absolutely. Our own backyard, I'd say three premiership teams uh, went to the wall, unfortunately, and feel, you feel for all the, the players there, the, 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 all the uh, backup staff that were, were made redundant. I think if we look at it, Certainly, at the moment, that World Rugby has only one source of funding, and that is every four years a World Cup. And normally, that funds the whole game, all the development programs for in a four-year cycle. So basically, World Rugby distributes that to everybody. We don't hang on to it. We don't build ourselves uh, new offices and things like that. And that. Uh, Chairman doesn't have a private jet, you know, anything like that. He goes, yeah, he goes to Edinburgh yesterday and gets a train ticket for twenty-two quid, you know. So old habits die hard. <laughs> and, and I, I just think that we are now looking at different business models, how we can uh, take more control over our income, over our broadcast, so that we can actually generate more funds. So with those funds, to then invest them in areas that we will get a return on. You look at the USA market, for instance, currently untouched really within rugby. Uh, we know it's a very, very difficult market to break into. You know, there's, uh, you only have to look at the Super Bowl, for instance, the size of that American broadcast market. It's not going to be easy for rugby, but we, we feel that there is a huge opportunity in rugby in the US. What we have to do is make certain when we go in 31, that we have a competitive home team from the USA of the Canada as well. So those teams are successful and that will be the catalyst, a real catalyst that uh, that will kick the sport on. So we are investing heavily with our American partners to grow the game there and also not ignoring South America as well, which is another growth area and also the possibilities of uh, of, of Asia. Well, I'm looking forward to the appearance of Taylor Swift at the filed annual awards dinner, Bill. Absolutely, yeah. Well, I, know, I know she's uh, she's cute. <laughs> Her agent's been in touch already. <laughs> um, we're 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 back in Paris, of course, in a few months' time because we've got oh, yeah. Olympic Games there. Yeah, track and field, obviously, in the same stadium that you hosted us all in. Um, I guess rugby sevens now very much a part of the Olympic landscape and part of that global development. Absolutely. Very much an integral part of that development. Uh, 
For some countries, it won't necessarily be a priority seven, so they will obviously still prioritize 15s. But for many, many countries, that this is a way that they can actually, as unions and federations, that they can access more funding from their uh, their Olympic, their domestic Olympic organization. And we actually start off two days before the, uh, the opening ceremony. So we start off with a men's competition on the Wednesday and the Thursday, opening ceremony on the Friday, final of the men's on the Saturday, and then the women's on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. So we're, we're finished in the tournament on the Tuesday evening. And I think we'll be the first gold medal on the uh, on the Saturday, the first team gold medal, which will be rugby. Well, I'm delighted you finished that early, Bill, because you can then come to the stadium and, and watch the number one Olympic sport for a few days with me. I will look forward to that. I will look forward to that indeed. That I can't. I cannot leave this conversation, as you know where I've got to go now, I cannot leave this conversation without reference to Question of Sport because yeah. I had a number of appearances on Question of Sport. Many. I think on a couple of those occasions you were my captain. And, look, I think I think you've already alluded to it. It was a, it was a large part of your life, um, which is just as well given that you've now told everybody that you were banned. But yeah. the Question of Sport was... was Sort of kept you, kept you off the streets. But I'll never forget the episode with with you, Emlyn, and of course the Princess Royal. I I watched it the other day, just in preparation yeah. of this. It, I have to tell you, Bill, it was a joy to watch. <laughs> joy, she was unbelievable. She, is, I think, she's a, a wonderful person. Loves sport absolutely, and uh, really entered into the spirit of it because. If you look back, whenever it was in eighty-five, something like yeah. that, eighty-six, then you rarely saw the royal family outside public appearances. Yeah, and so it was a real coup for questions for, for David Coleman and the the team there to uh, to get uh, a royal idol on it. And she entered into the spirit of the game. And uh, I, I tell the story that sort of uh, I realised we weren't going to win it because we started off on the picture board. And the first six pitches were of horses. So I, said, I thought, we're not going to win this one here. But but coming back to question sport, what it did give me, as somebody who retired at 29, it enabled me in a funny sort of way to still compete competitively yeah. with superstars of the game, of all sports, like you said, like yourself, because it's a great thing to be invited to get. I remember hey. I was invited to get to Question of Sport. Well, crikey, I've made it here to get on yeah. Question you, you thought you'd come of age. Absolutely, yes. And uh, to get that phone call. And then uh, David Colton, who you would have worked with for many, many years, sort yeah. of, uh, was unbelievable. His knowledge of sport, his enthusiasm, yeah. no. and his humour, and his humour were. were Yes, his, his humour didn't always come out on on the athletics commentaries, but actually, he was a he was a very he was a very very funny guy to to spend time with. Uh, sorry that it's been scrapped. Very sorry, yeah, very sad. I think it's end uh, of an era. I think look, the BBC obviously have got challenges regarding sort of uh, content and things like that now, and uh, whereby when when we were lads, they. Everything was on the BBC, wasn't it? Whether it's the, the, the horse race, uh, the soccer matches, yeah. the FA Cup, you name it, the 
cricket, athletics, everything with, with on the BBT. So they had a huge archive of, of sort of uh, that they couldn't always go back to. And I think it is an end of an era. And it is sad because I, in my opinion, they moved away from the sporting aspect of it and tried to make it a bit too show busy. Could they have done more to resurrect it? I think so. Yeah, I do. And it's sad to see it go. And hopefully it will come back. Yes, I, I, I think there's scope for it, certainly. Yeah, and I think um, there's demand for it. I could go on, Bill. It's I think it's probably pretty evident. I could we could I could go on nattering yeah. all day, but I'm conscious that you've already been very very generous with your time. Um, let me try and pull the knitting together, as they might say in in our part yeah. of the world. Yeah. Um, chairman of World Rugby, chairman of the RFU. Yeah. British and Irish Lions tour manager, British and Irish Lions captain. England captain, businessman, husband, father of two rugby-playing sons, most recently, Knight Grand Cross of the Order of the British Empire. Uh, uh, it's a bit like glugging your way through a quart of cream, but I am going to have to ask you this question. What are you most proud about? Oh, well, obviously, family. You're proud of your family. you sort of uh, Hillary three sons and what they achieved in life. I think if I look back, the proudest thing that anybody can, you know, you can do if you is actually representing your country to me to captain your country in a winning team at home is sort of something special because it's only when you you realize how much it means to everybody involved in the sport you know in your sport all they want you to do they want to go to twickenham see you play well but really see you win. And to me, that, that when I look back, is sort of my proudest moment be uh, playing for England and being captain. You you opened your remarks with something that struck me, and I'm, I'm going to repeat them. You said to me that you found yourself very, very comfortable in the rugby environment. Let me repay that compliment because for... Any of us that have been in that rugby environment, thank you for making us feel so comfortable uh, and making the game so accessible and understanding. Bill, thank you for spending the time with me today. And I look forward to joining you in Paris in a few months' time. For the number one Olympic sport, Bill. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Bill, thanks ever so much. Okay, See you soon. All, right, all the best to you. Cheers. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSN 